Mortimer, episode 24. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Being a business magnate, I am relishing the responsibility of introducing this week's episode of Mortimer. And here it is. In the garden, Orange's heart rumbled like a marching band's bass drum. His head was spinning and his eyes felt crossed. He'd heard everything. The Albrights were fugitives. While they hadn't actually used any names, Orange had every reason to believe that they were housing Matilda Hornwasher. Miss Hornwasher, suspected of murder, had fled to Philadelphia where she was arrested the first time and then, while being transferred to a containment facility, had escaped again. Ever since, the police had been searching for Miss Hornwasher, and yet she'd been living right here in Georgetown all this time under the alias Sissy. The Albrights had been housing her and therefore were also likely to be involved in the murder. He took a delirious step forward and felt a twig snap beneath his feet. The sound resonated and echoed across the extended yard that made up the Albrights' acreage. The voices in the kitchen silenced. They had heard him. Sweat was pouring down Orange's back and chest. He had to get away. He heard yelling again in the kitchen. He chose this moment to turn and run. But from behind him, the door opened and he heard someone running. Don't move! The order belted out across the night. His brain went into overload. He tripped and a moment later, dirt was up his nose and in his eyes. Mr. Orbright grabbed him and yanked him up off the ground. He slammed Orange against the back of the house. What the hell are you doing on my property? Mr. Orbright held the knife menacingly. Nothing, Orange stuttered. The metal glinted in the moonlight against his throbbing throat. What did you hear? Orange shook his head vigorously. Nothing. He hated to kill the young man. Really, he did. He'd never killed a person before and certainly didn't want to start now. But this kid had heard them. He'd tell the authorities. They'd be ruined. Everything he'd worked for, all that they had gained, money, power and reputation, all would be lost. They'd be forced to return to the slums, a life on the run, or worse, behind bars. No, he couldn't risk it. Mr. Albright swallowed down the bile that was rising in his throat as he looked into the frightened eyes of the young police officer. He was going to have to kill him. Matilda pulled a suitcase out from beneath the large bed. She dashed to the oak dresser and began frantically pulling out items and putting them in the suitcase. "'What are you doing?' Mrs. Albright asked. She was teetering on the edge of hysteria. Her back was pressed against the closed door of the bedroom. "'Pack your bags. We're leaving.' "'Why?' "'Because there's no way that anything that transpires out back is going to end well.' "'Maybe it was just an animal.' 
She shot Mrs. O'Brien a look. We're getting out of town tonight. But what do I pack? Whatever you can carry. Bring cash, diamonds and valuables for trade. We're going to need money. But, but where are we going? Do you know how to sail? Mrs. O'Brien shook her head violently. Well, uh, of course not. We, we always hire a skipper. We'll have to make do. Matilda continued filling her suitcase. My brother taught me years ago. Oh, God, what if that person kills my husband? Go pack your bags, came the hushed order. Where are we going? Mrs. Albright asked again. We're sailing to Cuba. The cell was ice cold. The gaggle of marauders at the card table gave Morris the willies. He sat on a bench at the opposite end of a large room. You can't call on credit when you's landed yourself in the clinker for stealing. A large man with a bald head growled at his opponent. Are you calling me out? He cracked his knuckles and leaned forward. Knock it off! There was a loud crash from the guard that made Morris's heart startle. The next hand was dealt. Morris hadn't slept two winks since he'd been arrested by that good-for-nothing baby-faced cop. Why, that kid had hardly seemed old enough to wear a grown man's breeches let alone carry a police badge. Morris hadn't done anything. All he'd wanted to do was to deliver some ice cream and take his lady friend to the country for a weekend alone. But that good-for-nothing son of the boss had caused all this by being a lazy, incompetent loafer. That ingrate kid had been given the singular task of making a delivery to one of the most important houses in the state for some stupid party they were having. But no, that worthless rat hadn't shown up for the delivery. And who had to pick up the mess? Morris, that was who. His arduous thirteen-hour shift had ended. He and Sissy's bags were packed, and they were about to leave when the knock came at his door. It's the bus. He needs you right away, the trembling factory worker jabbered as Morris opened the door. My shift is over. Get lost. Well, the, the truck hasn't been loaded, and our driver didn't show. Well, that ain't my problem, Morris growled, pushing the door back but the kid's hand had shot up in a desperate gesture. He said that I had to get you to come back right away. He needs you to make the delivery. Oh, get someone else to do it. I'm off the clock. He was sweating bullets now. None of the rest of us can drive the van. Use the buggy. Morris, baby, who's at the door? Oh, some kid from the factories says they need me to go back in, Morris shot over his shoulder. Please, mister... If I go back there without you, the boss will wring my neck. Sissy appeared at Morris's side. Watch this, her lips pursed into a pout. You ain't cancelling our trip, are you? Absolutely not. Morris clenched his teeth, recognising the signs of sympathy as he glowered down at the young, trembling twig before him. Please. Baby, what's all this? Morris let out an exasperated growl. Get your shoes. We have to make a stop before we leave. Thank you, mister, the young man exhaled. Now get off my stoop, Morris shot back before slamming the door. Metal scraped against metal as the cell door was opened. Morris looked up from his lap, his lips still curled with ire from the memory. It was the deputy who'd booked him when he'd first arrived. Morris Jones, came the drone voice. Morris pushed up from his spot on the bench and ignored the looks from his cellmates. Chief has some questions for you. When are you fools going to let me go? I ain't done nothing. Morris allowed himself to be led by the guard. Another fell into step behind him. Morris shot a look over his shoulder and the guard narrowed his eyes. 
Follow me, the first turned a corner and used his key on another locked door. The hallways were stark and white, the floors dismally soiled. Morris wondered how many felons had traipsed these halls, wondered what they'd been in for. Theft? Murder? Morris ignored the anxious flush of heat that warmed the small of his back. They pushed through another set of doors and into the lobby of the precinct. There was a hum of music and the sound of voices as people zipped past. Morris admired their freedom to move about as they chose. There were no shackles at their ankles. They weren't wearing idiotic black-and-white khakis. The deputy led him down another series of hallways, and finally they stopped outside a heavy wood door. "'Not to the interrogation room?' Morris asked dully. "'Keep your mouth shut, or we'll put you back in the cell.' They pushed the door open and shoved Morris inside. A silver-haired man wearing a black officer uniform and glistening gold badge rose from behind the desk. "'Have a seat, Mr. Jones.' His voice was gravelly, no nonsense. Morris jerked his elbow out of the deputy's grasp and shuffled to the overstuffed leather chair that was opposite the massive, meticulously organized desk. That'll be all, the sergeant said to the man in the doorway. Uh, but, sir, if I need you, I'll hit the bell. Yes, sir. After they'd been left alone, the sergeant lit a cigarette and put it to his lips. He eyed Morris silently for several moments. Morris took the opportunity to look about the office. It was clear that this man had earned his stripes. He had certificates from a number of government agencies. He'd served as an army general, according to another placard, and retired to serve as chief of police five years ago. Morris's idea of retirement was living in a cottage as far from town as you could get, not working. To each his own, Morris crossed his arms. The sergeant opened a folder, which Morris assumed was his file. Driving recklessly... Resisting arrest, he looked up, his steely blue eyes burning into Morris's own. Harboring a fugitive? Don't you dare pad my file to add more certificates to your damn wall, Morris shot up. Sit down, thundered the sergeant. Morris clenched his jaw and lowered back down into the seat. You deny these allegations? Morris was not by any means a Pollyanna, but he wasn't a crook or liar either. He clenched his hands on the arms of the chair and resisted the adrenaline that urged his muscles to thrust him across the desk and attack. I ain't harboring no one. The sergeant looked unimpressed, turned a page in the file. Miss Matilda Hornwasher. Does that jog your memory? I've never heard that name in my life. The officer sighed with impatience. If you come clean, the penalty will be less. But I've never heard of a... Matilda, whatever you said her name was, Morris said in earnest. I have several accounts of you being with a woman that fit her description. What? There was a report from your super who saw you with a blonde woman. Similar report came in from Porter Bran. Who? He's a young man that works in the factory. He was sent to deliver a message to you the night you were arrested. He said he saw you with Matilda. That wasn't Matilda, that was Sissy. The officer wrinkled his brow. I find it very irritating that you're playing this game with me. I think you got me mixed up with the wrong man. I was taking my girlfriend Sissy out on a date to the country. The incompetent boss's son didn't show up to deliver a shipment. That porter kid was sent to my house to make me do the delivery. And I, I wasn't with no one named Matilda. I was with my girlfriend Sissy. The officer took another drag on his cigarette and watched Morris carefully. He leaned forward, tapping the ash into the tray. 
I'll give you that I might have been a bit distracted while driving. Reckless is a stretch. And that officer you had out there was a bona fide moron. But I ain't no criminal, Morris went on. Mr. Jones, the sergeant interrupted. The woman who goes by sissy is Matilda Hornwasher. Morris's jaw clanked shut, and he jerked his head slightly to the left, turning his ear toward the man. What's that? The officer took a fountain pen from its holder on his desk and turned to a fresh sheet of paper. When did you meet this young lady? Morris was confused. Um, oh, a couple of months ago? The pair of silver eyebrows raised. A couple? Well, what's all this about? Morris began to feel anxious. What's going on? Where did you two meet? Morris was not about to give that information away. He'd met Sissy at the church, a speakeasy hidden down off High Market Street. One of the saving graces of Georgetown after the government had put the kibosh on clubs and bars. Out, he said simply. Where was Matilda staying when you met her? Are you going to tell me what this is all about? Answer the question, came the abrupt reply. With some friends. Who? I don't make a habit of giving my dates the third degree. The heat on Morris's spine was spreading upward as the officer made notes on the pad of paper. Truth be told... Morris didn't know much about Sissy. They had met at the church months ago. She'd been wearing a red cocktail dress that hiked up a good bit. Her blonde hair was unfashionably long, hanging about her oval face. They'd only used first names, and she'd never let him take her home. Morris found the mystery enticing. He never bothered to question it. More often than not, they'd have a fantastic time, and then she'd disappear for days to weeks, until suddenly showing up on his doorstep again. More recently, her visits had increased in frequency until one day Morris realized that he was living with the woman. Despite their change in proximity, the beautiful woman had always remained an enigma to Morris, which suited him just fine. He'd kept things casual, and that was just how he liked it. Is it true that Matilda was living with you for the past two months? Um, well, not officially. Yes or no? I'm getting sick with this interrogation, Morris shot back in an attempt at self-preservation. Answer the question, Jones. She was not living with me, per se, but spent the night more often than not. Yes, the pen moved vigorously as the older man wrote. What else can you tell me about Matilda? Stop calling her that. Jones, I'm growing tired of your insubordination. The sergeant set the pen back into the holder. I'm tired of all these questions without an explanation of, of why I'm here in the first place. The officer sighed, leaned back in his chair, and crossed his arms. Are you familiar with the name Gerard Ascariot? Well, I don't know how some pompous millionaire shipyard owner has anything to do with me. Shut up and listen. Gerard Ascariot was one of the richest men in the country, the owner of the Centennial Shipping Line. At 10 o'clock p.m. on June 12, 1918, we got a tip that Mr. Iscariot may have been involved in illegal activities. We sent a man to trail him. He was found with a woman at his usual nocturnal hangout. The two had an altercation and were trailed to the docks. Mr. Iscariot boarded a small vessel and began to leave with her standing at the shore screaming that she was going to kill him. Immediately after her threat, about 2,000 feet offshore, his ship was bombed. She was quickly apprehended and convicted of murder. Morris swallowed hard, sweat collecting at the nape of his neck. And who, who was this lady? 
The sergeant leaned forward, his face close enough that Morris could see every scar, wrinkle, and spot. He saw the lip turn up in the corner and heard the sneer of derision. "'Your lady friend, a Miss Matilda Hornwasher!' Morris tried to swallow again. His throat was dry as a desert. "'Was the body found?' The sergeant leaned back slowly, took a drag from his cigarette. He met Morris's eyes. "'No!' "'Freeze!' A voice pierced into the darkness, followed by the sound of a gun being cocked. A light clicked on, and the bright beam of light flooded them. Orange's mind careened from confusion to gratitude, and then to a whole different type of fear. Mr. Albright jerked his head toward the light and squinted. "'This is private property! Drop the knife! He was trespassing!' Orange didn't dare move, but his frightened eyes shifted from the blinding light to the face of his captor. "'I'll give you to the count of three. He recognised the voice. Mr. Orbright considered for a moment, the blade trembling in his hand that was poised to slice Orange right through the heart. One! Orange felt dizzy. It was growing more and more difficult to breathe. Two! Then before the owner of the gun could say three, the grip on Orange's neck was released, and Mr. Orbright tore off into the blackness. Orange fell to the ground, coughing, his hand at his aching neck, as the owner of the flashlight let out a curse. "'You stay here!' he ordered to Orange, before running after Mr. Albright. Orange's heart thundered in terror and relief as he watched the two running into the darkness. He'd almost gotten himself killed. What would Emily have done? Trembling, he attempted to stand, his knees wobbly. He couldn't stay there in the darkness. What if Mr. Albright came back? Interrupting Orange's panic, there came another noise. The back door of the house opened again. "'Stay close!' Matilda hissed. She shot a glance over her shoulder at Mrs. Albright, who stood behind her, shaking like a frightened pup. She carried two heavy bags in which were packed her most cherished and expensive items. An antique fur was draped over her shoulders, which would be both valuable for trade as well as to cut the chill that crept through the open window next to the kitchen door. "'I'd, I'd rather stay inside, if you please. Shut up!' Matilda clicked the handle and pushed the door all the way open. She stopped to listen for any unusual sounds, but all she heard was the lonely howl of a neighbor's canine. That dog gives me the chills. Shh! Matilda took a step forward, and lifting her own bag, she crept onto the darkened porch. Where did he go? She murmured, scanning the periphery of the property for movement. Mr. Albright had gone out into the yard to investigate a noise not five minutes before, and his lack of return told Matilda that something dangerous was afoot. She wasn't taking any risks. If they found her, that would be it. She'd be locked up in prison, or worse, executed. She was not going to just sit back and let them find her. She'd die running if she had to. Matilda gestured with a nod of the head and led her companion away from the house. They moved quickly, shoes padding silently on the grass as they wound their way through their neighbors' lawns and toward town. They'd avoid the street and stay in the protected covering of the trees and bushes. That was how she'd done it before. Matilda was no stranger to life on the run. Once upon a time, she'd been ambitious and hopeful. She'd been a woman with a dream of being a dancer in the theatre. She had the skill and the body, but after the tragedy had struck, ending the lives of their parents, Matilda and her brother Robert had been left penniless, homeless and hopeless. Robert was a skilled pickpocket, and he was quickly able to pilfer enough to sustain them while they squatted in a small studio loft. Matilda used her beauty and charm to woo rich men. She was awarded with jewels, promises, 
and she'd even entered into several marriages with men nearly on their deathbeds. Their fortunes grew, and so did Matilda's reputation, and one day Robert decided it was time to leave New York and carted them both off to the sleepy port town of Georgetown. She quickly acquired a job at the church, sitting at the bar and flirting with customers and drawing a crowd of fans. She was good with people, good at her job, and during the six months she worked there, she made good money too. Then everything changed. He wore suits purchased from New York City and smelled of cologne and rich tobacco. The aristocrat had been smitten with her from the start, like most men were, and dazzled her with furs, diamonds, and tales of the high seas. It wasn't long before their rendezvous had extended beyond the church. Within weeks they were entwined in a full-fledged love affair. They would sneak out at all hours of the night to be together, much like this night. Matilda moved silently across the field that edged downtown, a friend in tow. They were going to the harbour. The harbour had been his favourite meeting place. The sound of the waves and the starlight that stretched to the borders of the horizon spoke of romance and broken promises. Many times Gerard had taken her aboard his private boat, sailing for hours under the blanket of moon, sky and deceit. In a clandestine shroud of lust they plotted and planned, and then one evening her life crumbled into a million little grains of sand. What was that? Matilda halted her forward trajectory and listened. I don't hear anything. I heard footsteps. You probably heard your own footsteps. No one is out at this hour. Well, perhaps it was my husband. What has become of him? We must keep going. We'll send an inquiry once we've arrived in Cuba. Oh, there must be another option, Mrs. Arbright's voice trembled. We should have taken the car. Matilda dropped her bags and grabbed her friend's arms. You have to pull yourself together. You know there are officers scouting all of the roads. They'd stop us before we got out of the city. Oh, we'll never get away. I know how to sail. We'll steal a ship. But, but what if there are cops at the harbour too? Matilda's breath caught in her chest. The last time she went to the harbour in the middle of the night, a cop had been there. She swallowed down the lump that had formed in her throat and spoke with confidence. There are hundreds of boats docked there. We'll pull anchor and use the oars until we're far enough out to lift the sail. Oh, sissy! Quiet! Matilda picked up her bags again. Follow me! They moved with increasing speed down the hill toward the sound of the waves striking the dock. The plan had been ironclad, Matilda remembered as she hurried through the night. Every detail had been considered and scenarios delineated. But she had been delirious with love, deluded by the serpentine tongue of a wicked and selfish liar. All of the pieces had been put into place, but she hadn't known that his plans laid a trap for her. The night it had all happened, Matilda had been at the church, the only place they could be seen together in public. Tonight's the night. He slid his hand across her thigh and nibbled her lobe lasciviously. The bartender slammed down a whiskey in front of Mr. Iscariot, who abandoned Matilda's neck to empty the glass. She felt a flurry of excitement. They'd been planning to run away for months. Robert had been commissioned by Gerard to help with the transfer of funds and procurement of land. All that remained was for Gerard to give the word that it was time. I haven't packed yet. We have to stop by my place before we leave. Gerard grinned, smoke curling before his face. He nodded to the bartender for another before he addressed her. We aren't going anywhere. Matilda felt her stomach clench. What do you mean? You're staying here. Confusion and anxiety mounted. Uh, I don't understand. Listen, baby, I told you you'd have to prove it. You need to stay here with Charlie and Sue. 
Why? Matilda felt the hysteria brewing. He was leaving her. All the planning and plotting, everything she'd anticipated for months, was corroding before her eyes. Keep your voice down. She reached up to slap him, but he was too quick for her and grabbed her wrist. You lying bastard! Keep your voice down! He yanked her off the stool, pulled her out of the doors and into the street. Get a grip! he growled, pulling her farther into the darkness. You promised you'd take me with you. You, you promised me we'd start a new life together. I'll send you money as soon as I get there. I don't want your damn money. Gerard snickered and pushed her back against the brick wall. Pressing himself against her, he drew his pointer finger down her cheek and to her chin, his black eyes exploring her skin. Now who's the liar? You were always after my money, just like those other aristocratic dolts. I don't know what you're talking about. Her knees felt weak at his touch. I know about your history. You love the diamonds. He kissed her neck. The earrings. He kissed her clavicle. The rubies, sapphires, and garnets. He kissed her temple. I know your type. Searching for the richest and stupidest men you can find and then stealing their money. Gerard, stop. I ain't no fool, baby. He kissed her full and hard on the lips now. I'll take care of you all right. You'll have your comfortable home with all the trinkets you desire. But I want to be with you. I'm not like your others. His voice was low, with an edge to it that she had not heard before. We can be together. We can we can run away like, like, like you said. Tears streamed down her cheeks. Take, take me with you. It's too late. My private ship is at the harbour, stocked with provisions enough for one, ready to set sail. You, you, you'll never get away with this. Robert won't stand for it. A telegram was sent this morning, with news of your untimely death. Gerard's eyes appeared foreign and black. He stroked her cheek. I assure you, Robert will not come back to find you after he learns of how you died. Such a pity, too for you were always such a pretty little thing. Matilda finally arrived at the same harbour where her life had ended two years ago. The memories flashed vividly before her eyes with a sting that made her bite her lip until it bled. She would not shed another tear for that man. She heard a muffled scream, and she jerked around to look behind her. Sue was gone. She was alone. They had been followed, just as before, Dread dragged her feet and everything moved in slow motion. She had to make a choice. A small boat bobbed in the tar-coloured water before her. There was no lock to be seen, and all that held the boat to the dock was a singular rope tied to the pier. The people of Georgetown were far too trusting. She looked behind her again. Her breath came out in ragged pants. She had to choose. Dizzy with fear, she staggered forward, untied the rope. Sue was not wanted for murder. Matilda Hornwasher was. If she were caught, they'd bring her to trial, and it would be all over. She couldn't risk that. She had to leave her friend. She tossed her bags inside. I'm sorry, Sue, darling, she whispered into the blackness, and pushed the boat away from the harbour and into the sea. Mortimer's bushy moustache twitched in anticipation. Just another moment more, and the pirate captain would begin to cough, choke, and fall to his ultimate demise. The crews from both ships watched in anticipation as the captain silently puffed. Smoke curled up from the tip of the rolled tobacco. Where did he get this tobacco? Mortimer let forth a haughty laugh. Ha! Ha! 
to betray the secrets of your downfall should likely render it less of an enigma than its power puts upon you, you wanton, sodden-witted Prince Cox. Shut your pot, oh, ye pedantic, flabby bastard, the pirate shot back before taking another puff. The stillness stretched on, and everyone awaited the verdict that would determine the fate of Mortimer and the Esquire. The wind picked up. It carried the fog of tobacco smoke across the deck of the ship. Then his horrible mouth twisted up into a grin. With vigor, he thrust the fist-clenching Mortimer's offering into the air, and he called in a voice that echoed across the sea, I propose a treaty! Accept, and ye ship shall go free! <laughs> Otherwise, ye shall sink with ye ship as a coffin into the sea! Not far away, the Esquire crew stood on the bow, looking upon the scene with a mixture of relief and confusion. "'Your end is inevitable!' Mortimer retorted. "'Just a few moments more!' "'Are ye the captain of that ship?' Captain Robert jerked his head toward where, not far away, the Esquire bobbed. "'Was German Friar Martin Luther, the leader of the revolution of Protestantism against the tyranny of the Catholic rule?' Captain Robert, I can kill him now. Just give me the word. The portly sailor that stood beside the captain looked up hopefully. A pistol in his grimy hand pointed at Mortimer's belly. Yikes, we always do. <laughs> Lower your weapon. The captain hissed to the confused pirate, for the devil's sanctum never left survivors. I've a better, more lucrative idea. Captain Robert pushed through the crowd and stopped next to a dinghy that was tied on the side of the ship. Take me aboard your ship, Captain Mortimer. If we makes a bargain, your precious boat will not sink. <laughs> it's an absolute miracle that I haven't killed you yet, growled John as he yanked the door open. Anderson pushed past him into John's apartment. Great news, wonderful news. There's no such thing at this hour of the night. This was stuck to your door. Give me that. John snatched the envelope from Anderson and headed for the kitchen. Do you have anything to eat? I'm starving. It's 2 a.m., old man. Don't tell me you came over to raid my icebox. Anderson opened a dish and inhaled. How old is this? The super's wife dropped it by yesterday. May I? John rolled his eyes and flopped down on the couch, tearing the back of the envelope open. Why the hell not? Fix me some too while you're at it. Anderson put a pan on the burner and retrieved the dishes out of John's cupboards. Herberger called an emergency meeting. You do realise I was fired from that occupational howl? John was half listening. The letter, he noticed, was on heavy paper and ornately written. You finally accepted that, have you? Ha <laughs> ha! Anderson chuckled. I was beginning to think you never would. Ha <laughs> ha! John's eyes scanned the page. Dear John Adams Iscariot, my initial motivation was to read you the riot act upon learning of your departure from Georgetown. But upon recounting the intensity with which my being responded to yours during those ever so tender moments of passion we shared, I... Are you even listening to me? 
Anderson was standing in front of John, two plates in hand. John started and whipped the letter behind him. What? I told you, they found her. Found who? Anderson plopped down on the couch next to John, handing him a plate. Who's the note from? You have sixty seconds to tell me why you came banging down my door at two o'clock in the morning. Anderson held up a free hand. Let me start over. You know how I told you that the Esquire had been lost in the storm? Yeah, one of the biggest storms on record. John remembered what he had read in the newspaper. Well, Anderson's eyes glinted happily. Headquarters made contact. What? With the Esquire. She's not sunk? John's pulse quickened. No, she sustained damages, of course, but nothing Captain Clark can't straighten out. Wow. John put his plate on the table, the correspondence momentarily forgotten. What did Wolfenstein say? This is big, John. We put out a press release, and by tomorrow morning, all the papers will be talking about how the Centennial shipping line has the most unbeatable, indestructible ships in the world. Stocks will skyrocket. Business is going to boom again. I'll be damned. And Anderson pulled two tickets out of his pockets. I got us a first-class car down to Georgetown. We'll be there for the Esquire's arrival back to port. That's the climax to your story? It's the climax to my story, Anderson retorted. You know I've been waiting to see her. Oh, you're an absolute lunatic. John rolled his eyes. I simply can't guarantee you'll see Ellie. We have more important things to do. We have to stop her burger. I'll see her if it's the last thing I do. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. John stood up. If there's anything else? Anderson took the last bite from his plate and groaned while rising. Sure was good eating, old pal. He patted his stomach. John opened the door as Anderson put on his bowler. See you at the station. Yeah, I'll be there. Great. Anderson flashed a set of perfectly white teeth and disappeared down the hallway. John slammed the door. No one had a right to be that peppy in the middle of the night. A white object lying on the couch caught John's attention. The letter. He bent down, and opening the pages, he resumed reading. Those ever-so-tender moments of passion we shared, I immediately determined that the only way to continue this love affair was to solicit directly. Are you kidding me? You only need to name your price and I will make arrangements. I promise not to disappoint your needs. Good God! I have enclosed a detailed description of what I expect from you, should you be willing to come to a more permanent arrangement. Inquire on the reverse side for my straightforward directions. John flipped the page over. What? He cried out upon seeing the first two items on the bulleted list. What on earth? He blinked and flipped back to the front page again. I do hope that this correspondence finds you well and hope to hear from you again soon. I may be reached at the address below. Yours most passionately, Mrs. Longhorn. She signed her married name. He dropped the letter to the floor like it was burning his fingers and turned to pace the living room. His heart did a series of violent somersaults and his stomach began to burn. He took an antacid out of the roll on the counter and popped it into his mouth. Boy, was he in trouble. 
Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.